Can you imagine if you were from, say, Mars? You know how desolate Mars is. And God blindfolds you, says, I've got something for you. It's better than any Christmas present you've ever seen. Better than any amusement park you could ever go to. But plants us on planet Earth and takes off the blindfold and says, here it is. The beauty that surrounds us. It's phenomenal. And I think we take it for granted all the time, but uh, the older I get, the more I look around and just am in awe of the mountains that surround us, of the clouds that move in, of the owl that sits up in the tree or the eagle that soars or the antelope that's off Powers Road. I mean, look at all these wonders and it can't help but be moved to worship that God made this so that we would know how much he loves us, how powerful and beautiful he is. It says in the psalm, uh, it says that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. They display his handiwork from one end of the earth to the other. The skies are pouring forth speech day and night. What is it saying? I'm here I'm strong, I'm good, I'm loving, and this God invites us to have a relationship with him. My hope today, as we just kind of begin this series in the book of Genesis, is that you would stand in awe of the magnificence of this world and say, I want to get to know this God. Because there are actually two, two great testaments to God. One is the creation. It's called general revelation. It's what God has made known to everybody everywhere. You don't have to be a Christian to see it. Every person in every part of the world sees God's beauty everywhere and looks upward to find some source, something sacred that has a sense of meaning and purpose behind all this. But then God goes a step further. He gives us what's called special revelation, which is a book called the Bible that tells us exactly who this God is and what this God is up to in this world. And so uh, we're starting a series today. We're going to go through the book of Genesis. We're not going to do it like Ephesians, verse by verse. We're going to do it kind of chapter by chapter. We're actually going to take five chapters at a time. And here's what we'd like you to do. Starting tomorrow, join with us in reading through the book of Genesis. You can pick up a printed copy of the Bible reading plan out in the foyer. It looks something like this. And it gives daily readings from Monday through Friday. And what we're going to do is just read one chapter, Genesis. So Genesis 1 tomorrow, two, chapter 2 on Tuesday, and so forth through Friday. And then the next Sunday, we'll preach a message based on a story or truth contained in that portion of Scripture that you've just read to help give more explanation to or maybe a deeper understanding of it. And we'll do that all the way as we get through the 50 chapters of Genesis all the way through the end. Now, some of you have never read the Bible before. You're just overwhelmed by it. It's so, so complicated and so forth. But you're never going to get to know the Bible until you start somewhere. And I don't always recommend to start at the beginning because you can get bogged down pretty easily in the Old Testament. But I do think Genesis really is a great place to start because everything starts in Genesis. Everything begins right there. The creation of man, the fall of man, God's plan of redemption, the creation of the nation of Israel, God's covenant. It all starts there in the book of Genesis. It's got some great characters, Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and and, uh, Jacob and and Isaac and Joseph and all these characters. We're going to talk about them as we go through this book. So I encourage you. You can pick up a printed copy out in the foyer at the Welcome Center or Connections Counter, or you can go online to the church website. And you can actually subscribe to have it texted to you daily or emailed to you. If you need a reminder to read chapter one tomorrow, then it'll do that. It'll send a little note to you. And by the way, as you read, I just encourage you to, to, before you actually even read the Bible, to stop and say, God, 
Speak to me today through your word. You, you had this written in a book for a reason. You're trying to tell me something, and I want to hear what it is. I want to see what it is that you want me to, to see and to know. And so my heart is open to it. And if you just ask this one simple question, God, what are you revealing about yourself? You'll learn new things about God. You guys should go deeper and say, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do about it? I mean, you can go, go deeper in it. But the main thing is get in God's word. Sit quietly. Take about 10 minutes in the morning and just read the chapter and join with us. Now, here's some tips about reading the book of Genesis. Just, just to maybe give you a, a heads up of things you'll encounter. Um, Genesis has a literary style that's consistent with contemporary Mesopotamian and Egyptian cultures. Now, that's big words, but what you need to know is this. The Bible was written in a time and place in ancient Near Eastern culture, and so many of the things that are written there are very consistent with other literature written during that period of time. Sometimes we read things and go, that story sounds kind of weird. Why do they do this, or why is that the way it is? It's because that's the way people lived back then. That's the way they wrote back then. We write things differently. For example, when we write history, we like, we like to record all the details. Well, they write, in, in many cases, selective history. Here's what we want you to know that tells the story we want you to know about. And so it's not a complete history. It's a selective history. But Genesis was written in that period of time by who most scholars believe to be Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which had to have been written between 1500 and 1300 B.C. Moses wasn't there at creation just so you know that. He wasn't there at the beginning. But somehow through uh, hearing it transmitted from from people sharing one after the other or through direct revelation of God, he was able to write down what we have in Genesis. But he also wrote Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books are called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five. So Pentateuch, it contains not only the beginnings, but the law, which is God's directions for, their, for the Israelites to live according to. So it's written in that culture. The book had a specific audience and purpose, and we are secondary. So when you read any book of the Bible, you just need to know it wasn't written, first of all, to you. So whether it's Genesis or the Gospel of Matthew or the book of Revelation, we try to oftentimes read it in our context, but we, we can't do that. We actually have to put ourselves in their place, in their time, and say, what did it mean to them, and then how does it apply to me? If you don't do that, you start reading the Bible with kind of a strange lens. For example, uh, when we read the Last Supper of Jesus and how the disciples gathered around the table, well, in our mind, we think, well, pull up your chair, sit around the table, and we'll all sit around like we do at Thanksgiving. That's not what they did. They didn't sit at chairs. They sat on the floor. And so you need to understand the culture and the context of that first audience and then apply it to ourselves. Now, there's a key phrase in this book. It's called, it goes like this, these are the generations. Or some of your Bibles say, this is the account of it. It appears 10 different times through Genesis because they're trying to trace history. You can also divide Genesis into two chunks. The chapters 1 through 11 tell the beginning of mankind and what went wrong. Chapters 12 through 50 talk about the beginning of the nation of Israel and how God began to redeem them. Genesis shows what was good, what went wrong, and what God began to do to fix it. That's really the story of Genesis in a nutshell. And there are pictures in Genesis that you'll find kind of coming to their conclusion at the very end of the the Bible in the book of Revelation. For example, in Genesis, we have the the formation of heaven and earth. In Revelation, we see the new heaven and the new earth. In, uh, In Genesis, we see Adam being given a bride named Eve. And in Revelation, we see Jesus being given a bride called the church. 
In, Reve- in Genesis, we have a river and a tree of life. In Revelation, there's a river and a tree of life. In Genesis, there's the introduction of this creature called the serpent and how he began to cause trouble. And in the book of Revelation, we find the end of the serpent or the dragon and how he's destroyed forever. And so it's like these, these are two bookends of the Bible and everything in between tells a story, a story, not just a collection of stories. See, one of the problems we have in our culture is people look at the Bible kind of like a collection of fortune cooking sayings. And so if I want a verse for prosperity or if I want a verse for health or if I want a verse for prayer, I just find that verse and and I claim that verse. But that's not how the Bible actually was written. It was written to tell a story. It's really one big story from beginning to end. And it's not so much a story about you and me, but a story about God and God's love for us and how God sought us to bring us back to himself. And so I want to invite you into that story, into this creation story and this redemption story called the Bible. Now, in this um, very first chapter, we're not going to read it through verse by verse, but there are two main characters or sets of characters. The first is God. God is identified as the creator. So I want to read the very first verses of the book of Genesis. It goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The very first words of the Bible say a lot. In the beginning, God. Get that? In the beginning, God. When, when, when everything got started, who was already there? God. God was before everything began. I Meaning God not only uh, caused everything, God preceded everything. And people get caught up saying, well, then who made God? Nobody. That's why he's God. If someone made God, whoever made God would be God. But God is God because he's eternal. He's always existed. And in the beginning, in the beginning of our lives, in the beginning of what we call time and space, God was there and he began it. So God is forming this earth. And and when we look at outer space and start to probe what's out here, it's just mind-boggling. I'm going to throw some numbers to you, and I've actually just been very selective because when I was reading about this, it was so mind-boggling. My brain is, is so small compared to the numbers it was trying to compact in here. But there's a principle called the Goldilocks principle that scientists have referred to. Now, you know Goldilocks. Goldilocks trespassed a bear's home and uh, found that there were some beds and there were some chairs and there was some porridge and, and one set of things didn't fit her or, or wasn't comfortable to her or didn't taste good and the other thing was, was, was also not quite suitable for her. But then there was one thing, one bed, one chair, one bowl of porridge that was just right, perfectly suited to her. And so scientists have called this Goldilocks principle saying the earth is the place that's just right for us. See, we're situated between two other planets. Venus is way too hot, and the atmosphere is way too heavy. And Mars is way too cold, and the atmosphere is too light, but the Earth is just right. And this this is called by another term, the anthropic principle. But it's just right in so many ways. For example, here's just some... um, some features that are just perfectly conditioned for Earth. Earth has carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, all basic building compounds. All of life finds those, those, those elements. And there's water. There's water. Earth has the right temperature. 
It's warm enough for the water to stay fluid, not too cold, it freezes it all, and not too hot to evaporate it all. It's just right to allow it to continue to circulate and flow. We have the right gravity. If the gravitational force were even a fraction, get this, 0.000000, 37 zeros, one. If it was that much different, scientists says life on Earth would not be possible. It is just perfectly, meticulously fine-tuned for life. We have the right moon. Not all planets have moons, but we have a moon. And the moon serves a purpose. The moon actually helps regulate our seasons. And do you know that it causes the tidal movements on our planet, which then helps to take the water that gets warmed on the equator and starts to move it around the globe to get to the Arctic corners or the Arctic edges? It allows movement on this earth and the the fluctuations of the seasons. We have the right star. There are a lot of stars out there, but our sun is just perfectly situated, and it doesn't surge. Do you know if the sun surged one time, we'd be fried? But it's just constantly emitting light and heat that we benefit from. We have the right core. The, the earth has a solid inner core and a liquid outer core that protects us from deadly solar radiation. We have the right neighbors, Jupiter, you think, why is there wasted planets out there? Wait a minute. Jupiter blocks asteroids from hitting the Earth. Scientists said that that if Jupiter wasn't where it is, there would be 10,000 times as many asteroids hitting Earth that currently hit. So it's like a shield protecting planet Earth, perfectly situated. We have the right food. Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, says it's amazing that not only can life exist on Earth, but there's the food to feed all those people. Was it six or eight billion people on this planet? And it feeds them all. I could go on and talk about the thickness of the Earth's crust, the speed of the Earth's rotation, the tilt of the axis. All of these are just finely tuned. In fact, Dr. Ross says that there are 122 conditions that all have to be in line to enable life to exist on Earth. And the odds of that would be this, to find a place anywhere in the universe like that would be the equivalent of blindfolding yourself and asking you to reach down into um, the grains of sand on planet Earth and the one grain of sand you pick up had been written with your name on it. That's that's the odds. And so scientists will say, yeah, but there's an infinite number of, of planets out there. Surely there's another one just like the Earth. Well, they've never found it. Never found anything even close to it. It is as if... Somebody had designed this place not only for the creation of life, but for the sustaining of life. It's either that or just this incredibly random series of events that have come together. It's one or the other. Intentional, designed, or random and accidental. And those are the only two options. You have to take one or the other. And we would look to the scriptures to say, well, we would say, that God did it. Because anybody who looks at design and order and beauty would say, there's got to be an artist behind it. There's got to be a creative mind behind it. In fact, they would say the Goldilocks principle is one of the strongest arguments for the existence of a God. Because random things don't display that kind of beauty consistently. Now, scientists will say that the Earth started about 14 billion years ago. And I'm not going to argue that. It very well might have. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly when the world began. There used to be a, a, a date put in, in the King James Bible that says when the world began. They've taken it out now because we don't know. 
But, but scientists say it was like 14 billion years ago. And at that time, all of matter was compressed down into a, a dense ball. Now, I don't know how big that ball was. How, it had to, be, had to be big. And then, then all of a sudden, everything just, just exploded and went flying everywhere. And over time, the, the planets became round and stars got positioned. And when they've gone up into space, and look, they actually are seeing things are moving. In fact, when the Hubble telescope was sending back images of things that are in the far distance of the universe, do you know that those pictures they took to send back were things that happened 10,000 years ago? Because that's how long it takes the light from those things to get back to the camera. So they can't take like real-time pictures. That's just amazing to think the vastness of this world. But they say that, scientists would say that matter is eternal, that, that it's always existed. And we would disagree. You say, that's where we disagree. We believe there was a big bang. And that bang was caused by God. But God made something out of nothing. It says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God has made these things out of nothing. Out of nothing. Now, think about how big this universe is. I mean, we get caught up into our little community or our city or our nation or our planet. But do you know that we are like not even the size of a pinhead in the scope of the universe? I mean, let me blow your mind away with, with some numbers here. The Hubble telescope proved that there are over 100 billion galaxies in the universe. 100, how much is 100 billion? 100 billion galaxies, not planets. Ga- we are part of a galaxy called the Milky Way. And so we're just part of this big thing called the Milky Way. By the way, the Milky Way, if you'd, if you'd measure it from end to end, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. 100,000. How much is a light year? 5.88 trillion miles. It's, it's 100 times that. I can't, I can't even get my head wrapped around this. By the way, the sun that we're going to walk out the building today and see, you know how far that is? 93 million miles. You want to go take a trip to the sun someday? You'll never make it. Never make it. It's just so far away. I mean, we are just this little tiny speck in the universe. And it's almost as if when you're praying, you're going, you know, you're praying to God that all God's hearing is squeaky noises because we're so tiny. But it's not. God's paying attention. It's as if God said, I'm going to create this, of all the things in my vast universe, I'm going to create one place to display my power and glory in a very significant way. And we get to participate in that. Isn't that incredible? That we get invited to be part of this incredible drama that God has going on. That's just outer space. We can look at inner space, at your own human body and the 37 trillion cells in your body. And every cell is composed of DNA, this strand of genetic code that it tells everything about you, the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, whether you're male or female, all the organs in your body are all determined by this genetic code. And if all the, the DNA in your body was, was, was stretched out by its code and laid end to end, it would circle the earth more than seven times. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And that's just the visible world. There's an invisible world that science can't even study. See, it tells us in Scripture in the book of Colossians, By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So, what a fantastic world we live in. And as you read through Genesis and other books, I just need to remind you, the Bible is primarily a theological book, not a scientific book. It's not a science book. 
It's not intended to be a science book. Some things line up perfectly with science. Some other things are more poetic. It's not intended to give us scientific answers. It's not that it's contradicting science. Sometimes scripture is is trying to tell us a point. It's it's not trying to tell us exactly how things happen, but why. Its intent is not to describe methods like how God did everything, but to inscribe meaning. Because God made it, here's how you should respond. It doesn't matter so much how you got here. What matters now is where are you going? Where are you going? You're already here. You don't have to figure out how you got here. The big question is where am I going? What's ahead for me and my life? Also, God's word and God's world speak one truth. In other words, scripture and science agree. What doesn't agree is interpretation. Here's where we often get like shaken. Like, oh my, science says the world's billions of years old. That, contr- that conflicts with the Bible. Well, I don't know, does it? Where does the Bible give an age to the earth? It doesn't. The earth and the universe that God made is true and lines up with God's word. Where it doesn't line up are where, one, scientists have had faulty interpretations of the data, or two, believers have falsely interpreted, interpreted scripture. So, so over the course of time, science has had to adjust its theories and its interpretations. So have believers. Believers have had to look at things differently. There was a time when believers thought the earth was flat until scientific information proved it was round. They said, oh, my goodness. Which, is the Bible wrong when it says there's the four corners of the earth? No. That was the knowledge they had at the time. That was how people talked at the time. That's all they could see. They didn't have the scientific instruments to see the roundness of the earth. But it is, is saying really the same thing. They agree. But the bottom line is this. Neither the world nor you and I are here by accident. We're not just random creatures on this earth. We have a purpose. And that's why the second character in the creation story is so critical. The creation of man. Man and women, all of us, all of humankind are imagers of God. We are his imagers. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That word for man is the Hebrew word Adam, Adam. God made Adam, meaning God made people, Adam and Eve. He made them in his image. Not just that we reflect or that we, that we bear an image of God, but we actually reflect God. It, it tells us our purpose. I am to image God. I am to reflect God on this earth. I am to be different than everything else on creation because I'm made in his image. Now, scientists have shown that we have... 99% of the same DNA as the chimpanzee, 99%. But I want to tell you, that 1% difference makes all the difference in the world. I mean, let me just ask you, if you had to go have surgery, do you want a chimpanzee to do it or a doctor? <laughs> does that 1% make a difference to you? You bet it does. 1% makes a world of difference because we can create like God. I mean, think of how creative we are. We can take materials and make carpet. We can make automobiles, spaceships. We can, we can put spices in meals. Animals do the things they've done all through history. They don't advance beyond that. We do because we can create. We are made in God's image, and we can choose to do things as creatures made in God's image. We don't just react out of instinct. Animals will kill out of instinct. A believer would say, I won't kill. Not because I don't want to, but because something in me says don't. Animals will mate randomly with whoever they want to mate, many creatures. 
Humans, when they act like animals, do the same thing. But wise humans say, I'm committed to my spouse. I don't do that. I don't grab every pretty woman, every pretty guy and mate with them. We don't act like animals. We make choices. We give mercy when an animal would kill because we're made in God's image. Since God made us, we must look to him for our purpose. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Meaning you were made by him and for him. And if you were made by him and for him, doesn't that just raise the question, then what do you want from me? See, I can't help but look at creation and become a worshiper. Because that's a natural response. Since God made us, we should bow to him and worship. Listen to Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us bow down. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Creation should make us stand in awe. When you look at the stars, when you see the mountain, you see a majestic animal, when you hold a newborn baby, it should just cause us to say, I want to worship this God. And so I want to invite you today just to worship our maker. We tiny little human beings who have been made in God's image are invited to do something no other creature can do quite like us. Voluntarily choose to worship with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm going to invite you to stand right now and let us worship our maker.